can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. This is another one of those days where we take a break from our regularly scheduled programming and talk about a special day that the church around the world celebrates, and that day is the Transfiguration. The Transfiguration, as a way to explain what this is about, why do we celebrate this? Why is it important? I think we can think about we can think about it like this throughout history God has moved us progressively closer to knowing him brought us in a closer and closer relationship with him started off Abraham Isaac and Jacob in relationship with God but farther away much farther away than we are now God didn't reveal his true personal name Yahweh to Abraham Isaac and Jacob in the way that he did at Mount Sinai. So we start off when God starts his relationship with his people, when he starts over with Abraham and his family. He's going to make Abraham and his family the, the, the vehicle to bring Jesus and to bring blessings to the whole world. Anyone who belongs to God is a child of Abraham. But we start off with God being distant, not revealing that much. It reveals his name as God Almighty which says a lot of things, but isn't very personal. But then in Exodus chapter 6, as God talks to Moses, and he's telling him to go speak to Pharaoh, tell the Israelites that he, Moses, has come because God has come to rescue them and to take them away from this awful place. God says in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 2, I only revealed myself as God Almighty to Abraham, but I've never yet, I've never revealed my real name which is the Lord, which really means Yahweh. It's a personal name. So now God went from being there, he's there. You can see he's there. But now things became much more distinct. The blanks are being filled in. Now you can see more. The picture is becoming much clearer. It's still not perfect, but you can get a sense of what's happening here. Now God has revealed his name, which talks about his character, the covenant God who's going to come and to rescue his people from slavery and to bring them to a new place, a better place, a better place. And then all the way in the next covenant, the second covenant, the new covenant, we have Jesus who says to Philip, if you've seen me, you see the Father. And God's, God has revealed himself more and more and more. So it used to be there in a pencil sketch sort of way, has now been made very clear. And I don't believe God is Yosemite Sam, but you get the point with the picture getting clearer and clearer throughout time. And so God reveals himself in ever more clearer ways as, God, as the story goes on. And in the, in the Gospels, in Luke chapter, nine, Luke chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, and in Matthew, we are given a vision of who Jesus actually is. And because of what he's about to tell them and what they're going to have to go through, it's important that they know who they're doing this for, right? It's important that we know who we actually worship. We might know in our heads, because we nod our heads when people come up here and they read statements of faith and we read scripture. And we know it in our heads, but God wants us to really know it in our hearts. Who is Jesus really? Some people paint Jesus as being a great teacher, like a prophet, someone who, who's, who teaches, a great teacher. 
Some people paint Jesus as being this great moral example. If you want to know what it means to be a godly person, you should look to Jesus. Some people paint Jesus as the as this this ultimate philosopher, right? The most the, the, the wisest guy ever, Jesus the philosopher. Other people like to paint Jesus as Jesus the Puritan, very stern, very cold, very humorless, sort of the judge, the icy judge, the hatchet man. Have you seen pictures of Puritans? Do they look happy? No. So some people paint Jesus the Puritan. Some people paint Jesus from the Victorian era as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, very sentimental. The song in the garden, painting a picture of a very soft, tender, loving Jesus. The Jesus whom you want to meet in the garden when the dew is still on the roses. You know, very sweet, very soft. Then there's Jesus, the countercultural Jesus, who's against the establishment. The establishment's wrong. Jesus has come to take a baseball bat to the whole thing and to, to, to wipe out corruption. He's the countercultural Jesus. He's the Jesus freak from the 70s, one of the Jesus people, you know, countercultural guy. Some people paint Jesus as this economic and social liberator, usually people more on the, the left side of the political spectrum. Jesus is the liberator. The world sucks. Jesus has come to fix it. Jesus hates capitalism. Jesus hates oppression. Jesus has come to fix all of that. And other people, more often on the right, paint Jesus as this great political icon to be used to justify all sorts of things. But who actually is Jesus? Who is Jesus? There's some truth in many, not all, but many of the things I just rattled off. Right? Jesus is a teacher. Jesus isn't a cold, humorless ice man. Jesus did come to liberate us. I read the passage from Isaiah 61, liberate the captives. Jesus has come to do a lot of things. But who is he really when you, when you really want to boil it down? Who is Jesus? So today, Jesus wants Peter, James, and John to know who he is because he's going to tell them some really important things. And it's not going to make any sense unless they really understand who he is. As you think about your life, Christianity will be abstract and uh, something that floats around in the clouds, but will be less real to you unless you really know who it is who died for your sins, rose from the dead to defeat Satan for you, and love God with all his heart in your place. Who is this Jesus? The transfiguration and the Jesus' commands around it, they help us answer that question and answers it differently than any of the frameworks that I just rattled off. So we're going to go through this section, Luke chapter 9, verse 18, all the way down to verse 36. Luke 9, 18 to 36. We're going to go through this in three steps. One, Jesus asks, who do you think I am? Which is what God's asking us today, too. Then we're going to see Jesus telling them, what are they supposed to do with that? He says, if you, want to lose, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. What does that mean? And then we're going to see the transfiguration itself. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning in your son's name. Speak to us today. Convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Please banish all thoughts and preconceptions and, and ideas from our heart and mind that are not yours. And speak to us this morning through your word and help us to be more like your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So he starts off 
in Luke, we're going to back up. We're not going to start with the event. We'll just back up and start somewhere else. In Luke chapter 9, verse 18, leading up to it, they are in the city of Caesarea Philippi, which is at the foot of a mountain. These are some of the ruins with the, the hill mountain in the background. And Jesus asks in Luke 9, 18, once when Jesus was praying by himself, the disciples joined him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And that's the same question that God asks us. Who on earth is Jesus? Jesus in scripture, he's called, he calls himself a brother to people who belong to him. He calls himself a friend, but does that exhaust who he is? Is that all he is? Is Jesus more than your brother? Is he more than your friend? Who is Jesus if you claim to worship him? And do we actually believe that? So he asks them, who do you think I am? Who do you say I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, that one of the ancient prophets has come back to life. So the answer floating around seems to be that he's a prophet, right? He's just, he's the best prophet ever. He's like Elijah. He's like John the Baptist. He has come to give a special message from God. And is that wrong? Is it wrong? Moses said Jesus was going, there was going to be a prophet that came after him. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, he said a special prophet's going to come. Jesus is a prophet. But is that all he is? Is that all Jesus is? He asked them, and what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ sent from God. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell this to anyone. Peter says the Christ. He means the one that all the scriptures promised about. You're not just John. You're not just Elijah. You're not, you're not Isaiah. You're not any one of those guys. These are great guys, wonderful people. Great folks, but none of them are the Messiah, the one who God promised to fix everything. The one from Daniel chapter 7, the son of man who's going to receive a kingdom from the ancient of days, who's going to fix this world, fix everything. The one who's been promised from the beginning. Peter says the Christ sent from God. In, Mark's, in Matthew's account, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The Son of God, meaning he has this such a close relationship. He's the same as God. He's divine. He's equal. He's eternal. Such a close relationship with God that they have the relationship of father and son. It's a family unit with the Holy Spirit completing the triad. This isn't just a prophet, Peter says. You're not just a prophet. You're the chosen one. You're the anointed one. You're the one sent from God, you're God's son. And if that's true, as you think about your, and you claim to be a Christian, as you think about your life, as you think about your relationships, your marriage, your family, your sons, your daughters, as you think about your faith, as you think about how you live your life, as you think about your job, as you think about what are you supposed to do in your retirement years if you are retired, as you think about your money, even if you'd like to have more of it. As you think about all the things that make up normal, boring life, the boring stuff of everyday life, 
Does Jesus, if he, is who, if he is who Peter says he is, does Jesus inform and define your purpose and meaning for all of these things or not? Or is Jesus just something that's tacked onto your life with dollar store scotch tape? Does he define everything about your life, your purpose, your meaning, why you're here, everything about you? Or is he just a nice appendix to your life? Is he a footnote in your life? There, he's there, but what role does he play in defining and shaping how you live your life? Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell this to anybody. There's this this strange disconnect where Jesus says he has to suffer and die, And yet Jesus, on the other hand, says, I'm the son of man from Daniel 7, and I'm going to come back on the clouds and receive the kingdom my father's prepared for me. They're not going to be able to understand how to put these two things together until Pentecost happens. So he keeps telling them all through the Gospels to not tell people who he is. They can tell all they want as soon as the resurrection happens and Pentecost comes. So as soon as Peter says that, which is a great confession, right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus does something strange in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. He immediately turns and then tells them bad news. Bad news. You do believe this about me, but now I need to tell you something so that you don't doubt when it happens. When it happens, you're going to doubt who I am, what this whole thing was about, whether I really was who you just confessed I was, and he needs to prepare them for what's going to happen so they don't lose heart. And so in chapter 9, verse 22, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the legal experts and be killed and raised on the third day. How can the guy from Daniel chapter, if you've never read Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 13, it's this majestic scene in this otherworldly throne room where the Ancient of Days is sitting on his throne. It's clearly God. And the Son of Man is ushered into his presence and is given a throne and a kingdom. It's this, this divine majesty. How can that figure be suffer, be rejected, and be killed? How, could, how, do the, how are you supposed to piece those two different threads together? It's so shocking and so, so different from what anyone has ever expected. Luke doesn't have it, but the other two Gospels, Matthew and Mark, have Peter scolding Jesus, saying, that's never going to happen. Don't say that. God forbid this won't happen to you. They're not going to, we aren't going to be able to understand what's going on here until the Holy Spirit gives the, gives the disciples this unique understanding at Pentecost. So they go from being confused and scared to preaching to the thousands of people who are gathered in the temple that day. So he tells them that with no other explanation. He just tells them, which is shocking. And then he tells them this. He says, Jesus said to everyone, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves. Take up their cross daily and follow me. He wants them to, to get this, and they're not going to get it unless they really understand who he is. 
Who have, who have I been following for two years? Who am I listening to? Who are we following today? All, think about this. You can spend a long time thinking about what this means. All who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Saying no to yourself. So many of us want nothing to do with the kind of, the kind of total commitment and allegiance that Jesus talks about here. We want nice jobs, we want nice cars, we want nice marriages, we want nice houses, we want nice kids, we want nice careers, we want nice retirements, and those are all good things to want, and those are all godly things to want. But how much of those good things in our lives are about, are really about saying yes to Jesus, and how much of it is about saying yes to ourselves? How much of those things are informed by what Jesus says here, and how much of them are really what we want to do, which really doesn't involve saying, saying no to Jesus at all. That's what Jesus wants us to think about. It's what he wanted them to think about as he tells them he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be executed, and he's going to die. And so the only way to be truly faithful to him after this happens is to say no to yourself and take up your cross daily, daily, it's not a one-time thing, and follow me. And we can spend a lot of time thinking about what that means. He says in verse 24, all who want to save their lives will lose them. But all who lose their lives because of me will save them. It's almost like a proverb. You're supposed to look, you're supposed to look at the page and squint your eyes and think, what is, he, what is he talking about? What does it mean? All who want to save their lives or your souls, your translation might have it, but you get what it's saying. All who want to save their lives will lose them. If you try desperately to save your soul, your life, the, the, the life that you have now, the path that you're on now that has nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with God and his plans for you, who he made you to be, what he made your gifts for, how he wants you to serve him. If your entire golden life is to save the life you have now, you're going to lose your life. But all who lose their lives because of me will save them. If you make a decision to say no to yourself and to, to walk away from your own view and plans of relationships, of reality, of life, of values, of your orientation toward God, if you choose to say no to your own plans in your own life and you choose to lose that life for the sake of him, because of him, then that is the only way you'll actually save your life. To refuse to do that is to basically commit spiritual suicide. There's a way to see who you are. There's a way to see why you are the way you are. There's a way to see and understand your relationships, your life, your purpose. And you can either take Jesus' view, you can take God's view and let him define who you are and why you're here and what you're supposed to do with your life and your purpose in life. Or you can take your own way and throw all of that in the garbage and just live your own life. 
All who want to save their lives will lose them. And then he asks, what advantage do people have if they gain the whole world for themselves, yet perish or lose their lives? And the answer is, there's no advantage. Even though it might seem like it, there's no advantage. And Matthew and Mark add something that Luke leaves out. They say, what will people give in exchange for their lives? People will give anything in exchange for their lives because people follow everything except Jesus because Jesus is abstract, is out there, and is not real. He's not real. The gospel's not real. The threat of, of the, 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 the certainty of judgment after death is not real. Those are abstract things. Like the theory of relativity. I don't even know what it is, but I guess it's real. But it has no bearing on my life. That's what Jesus and the gospel are like to so many people. They'll give anything in exchange for, for that because I don't care about that. What will people give in exchange for their lives? He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. If, you are, if your goal in life is to live your own life to save your own life, you're going to lose it, Jesus says. And what that means is you're ashamed of him and his words. You're ashamed of him and his message. He's embarrassing to you. He makes you cringe. You don't want people to know that you belong to him. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he comes back to establish his kingdom. If your goal is to live your own life, you'll be ashamed of Jesus and his message. And the opposite's also true. He says in verse 27, as we get to our passage, the transfiguration, I assure you that some standing here won't die before they see God's kingdom. So he said all of these things. These are hard things, right? Really hard things to hear. What's going to make them really know that they ha you have to buy into this if you're going to be a Christian? You must believe this. You must really believe that you need, to for you need to say no to yourself and say yes to God. And that's what it means to live a Christian life. It's your view of relationships, reality, your purpose, meaning. Everything in your life is informed and given shape by Jesus or by you and your culture or whoever you follow on Twitter. Which one is it going to be? Jesus says it has to be him. You have to say no to yourself in order to have life. And so why on earth would they ever believe any of that? Because of who he is, because this isn't just Jesus, the good teacher, Jesus, the really smart prophet guy, Jesus, the Puritan, or the gentle Jesus, meek and mild guy who wants to meet you in the garden. This isn't, this isn't who's speaking to you, who's telling you this. This is someone very, very different. And so now we have the Mount of Transfiguration to make sure that they really understand that. Chapter, chapter 9, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus tells them that some people standing there won't see death until they see his kingdom, what he means, it, means many, it can mean many things, and people have wondered for a long time what on earth that means. What I think it certainly means is that 
what he's saying is, you guys here, you're going to know and understand who I really am one day soon so that these commands I'm telling you will be more real than ever for you when you see my kingdom coming. When do they see his kingdom coming? I believe they see the start of his kingdom coming at Pentecost when the Spirit's poured out in a miraculous, visible, audible way and God's power starts spreading all over the world with the gospel. It's not his kingdom yet, but it's the first fruits of Jesus conquering death. It's like a decisive battle that's been won, so the war is over, even though stuff is still going on. Everyone knows it's, it's over. Or a game where it's lost, but there's still three innings to play, and we just got to play it out. It's when Jesus' kingdom starts coming and is poured out. He goes to the Father's side, and he pours out his spirit on his followers at Pentecost. In Psalm chapter 2, Jesus said, Today, you're my son. In some, because some decisive moment has happened, something special has happened that has made Jesus sit down at the Father's side and grab his scepter and start in small ways to exercise his authority over this world. And in Acts chapter 13, Paul says that's when Jesus was resurrected and then went back to the Father's side. Some of you, he said, some of you here won't die before they see God's kingdom, and then you'll really understand who I am. You'll really, really understand who I am. Before Jesus' resurrection, so many people, they're so confused, the disciples on the roads to Emmaus, they're like, we thought he was the Messiah, but he can't have been because he died. And it's the resurrection that changes everything, and then the power of the Holy Spirit poured out by the resurrected Savior at Pentecost that changes everything and makes everything click and everything fall into place. So the disciples that were hiding in Mark's mother's house for who knows how long now suddenly are going out and preaching the gospel to everybody because now all, everything is clicked into place and they understand who Jesus is. And so we get to our passage this morning in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 29. About eight days after Jesus said these things, so pretty soon after, he took Peter, John, and James and went up on a mountain to pray. People want to know, where's the mountain? Which mountain is it? This is the mountain right above Caesarea Philippi, which is down there. Some people think it's a different mountain that's far, far away. And because it's been eight days, maybe they walked there. But since this is the huge hill just above the city where they're staying, I think it's probably up here. So if you want to know, where did this happen? Where did they go so this event could happen? You're probably looking at it right now in living color on your screen, this hill right there. They went up on a mountain to pray. They went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes flashed white like lightning. What does it mean that he's, his whole appearance changed and he's, he's glowing so brightly they can barely even, can't even look at him anymore? What is that supposed to mean? What does it signify when Jesus glows with this ethereal glory? What is he trying to tell us? What's he trying to tell Peter, James, and John? Two men, Moses and Elijah, were talking with him. They were clothed with heavenly splendor, 
and spoke about Jesus' departure, which he would achieve in Jerusalem. It says departure. The word is exodus. You have two of all the people on earth. Why do these two guys, Moses and Elijah, why are they, why did did Peter, James, and John see a vision of them walking and talking with Jesus? What do these guys represent? What did they do that can give us a clue about what they're saying about Jesus? Why these guys? The Bible doesn't tell us why. It just says they're there. So we have to guess what on earth are they supposed to mean? Moses and Elijah, and they're talking about Jesus' departure or exodus, which is what the Greek word actually is, his exodus. I think the best way to understand what's happening here, Moses was the one who led the Israelites out of slavery to the promised land. He's their guide and their leader who led them from slavery to paradise. And now Jesus is here. The the guarantor of a new and better covenant who's come to lead us from slavery and lead us to the finish line with the Lord forever. And Elijah, what happened to Elijah? Great prophet, he did amazing things, but he was taken up into heaven in a glorified, perfect state. His body and, body and soul were all taken up together, and he got to skip death in the intermediate phase of waiting for his body to be resurrected. So I think Elijah shows us what all of our future is, is to be in a resurrected body, perfect, whole, and complete with the Lord forever. And Jesus is the new, the new leader of the new covenant, the better Moses, who's come to lead us from slavery and lead us all the way to the finish line with the Lord. Two men, Moses and Elijah, were talking with him. They spoke about Jesus' departure which he w- or exodus, which he would achieve in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were almost overcome by sleep, but they managed to stay awake and saw his glory as well as the two men with him. Jesus is praying, and they fell asleep, which happened later also. But as soon as this otherworldly event began, they woke up and they see what's happening. And Peter doesn't know what on earth to say because he's nervous. So he, he, he says something anyway in verse 33. As the two men were about to leave, Jesus, Peter and Jesus, uh, leave Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good that we're here. We should construct uh, three shrines or three booths or three little tabernacle things. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But he didn't know what he was saying. It's just a stupid thing he said because he doesn't know what he's saying. Peter was still speaking when a cloud overshadowed them. And as they entered the cloud, they were overcome with awe. What can this cloud possibly be? Where do we see a, a cloud in a divine setting in the Old Covenant, especially associated with Moses? God's presence when God filled the tabernacle after they finished building it, when God filled the temple after Solomon finished building it in 1 Kings 8. God God is making his presence known in a visible way, the most visible way he usually does in this form of this impenetrable fog, suddenly covers them on the mountain. And they were overcome with awe. Then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. 
listen to him. God has a reason for doing this. Why is Jesus doing this? Why is God, why is God doing this? What is, he trying to, what is he trying to force upon Peter and James and John's minds? What's he want them to know? What's he want us to know? What's the purpose of this demonstration? Because that's what it is. It's a demonstration for their benefit. Why? And then God actually speaks and, and tells them about his son. This is my son. Quoting from Psalm chapter 2. The Lord who sits beside David's Lord in eternity. This, this man who you've been following, this rabbi who you've been following for two years or so, this is my son, number one. Number two, my chosen one, which is a direct quote from Isaiah 42, verse 1, where it says, is the servant who he's chosen who's going to come to save his people. My son, my chosen one, the one all the scriptures have been promising, who's going to fix everything. And then the last one, listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him which is exactly what Moses said everyone's obligated to do when this great prophet comes in the future. This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Do we listen to Jesus or not? Do we listen to Jesus or not? That's what he wanted them to hear. So when they look back and they think about what does it mean to, to gain my life? I have to lose it. What does it mean to say no to myself? Why do I have to take up my cross daily? Jesus said that before he'd even died. They don't really even know what that means. They, 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 can't, they can't fathom what it is he means because the Messiah can't die. So when they're told this, and then afterward, after Jesus dies, and they look back and they remember this special event, what do you think they're going to be thinking? Verse 36, even as the voice spoke, Jesus was found alone. So the cloud overshadowed them, God's presence with them. God speaks audibly, which must have terrified them. And as soon as he finishes speaking, Jesus was found alone. The cloud's gone, everything's gone. And they're just alone with Jesus on this hill above Caesarea Philippi. They were speechless and at the time told no one what they'd seen because Jesus told them not to. So what we see in the Gospels, what, what you enjoy today, what we enjoy today is a relationship that began as shadowy, distant, and impersonal with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has now become as personal as it can possibly be. God is invisible, but Jesus came to make him visible. God is incomprehensible. Who can really know? Who can fathom who God is? But Jesus came here to make God known to us in a concrete way. God is almighty, but Jesus brought him to earth. God is holy, but Jesus embodied that holiness as a real person to whom we can see and understand and relate. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, but God the only Son, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. How do we really know God? He can tell us his name. But how do we really know who God is? Jesus shows us who God is. Because he is God himself. So the questions we have to ask ourselves today is we think about what's the point of the transfiguration? Why does the church celebrate it? 
Why is it so important? God wants us to see who Jesus really is and have that make a difference in our lives. Or else all the things he tells us to do are just going to be nice suggestions. Now, Dr. Phil has nice suggestions too, sometimes on a good day, right? So what makes Jesus so different? It's because who he is. Who do you say Jesus is? There's theory and there's reality. In theory, the Seahawks could win the Super Bowl, and you'd probably like that, but is it really going to happen again? Is it really going to? I know Robin wants it to happen. Is it really going to happen this coming year? Let's be honest. No, okay? It's not. I know it'd be nice. I know if the stars align right, maybe it's not going to happen, okay? It's just not. But you're still excited about it. You still want it to happen, but it's not going to happen. And you know it. It's more of a dream. It's more of a it'd be nice if. It's more of a sentimental thing. It's not real. It's not real. It's not going to happen. And if it does, then pretend I didn't say this, right? But there's theory. I like something in theory, even though I know it's not real. And then there's real life. Which one is Jesus? Is Jeehawks? Is Jeehaw? Is Jesus the Seahawks in the Super Bowl? More water. Um, is that is that is that what Jesus is to us? Someone we like. We like the idea of. We don't really. It's not really real. It's more of an abstract thing. We like the idea of Jesus. We have the idea of him running our life, but it's not real, right? It's just a sentimental thing. Who do we actually say he is? There's a reason why he asked all of this. A few days before, he showed them who he really was. Who do you say that I am? We know, what the re- we know what the answer is, but is it real? Are we listening to Jesus? That's what God, that's what God wants, us to, wants us to do. Listen to him. Listen to him. If he is the Christ, then that means he is God's son, which means he is the chosen one who, who God has been leading all of the world toward throughout the story of the scripture, which means he's this special prophet who came after Moses, which means we need to listen to him. And God spoke from heaven. He spoke from earth at this moment on that hill so that Peter, James, and John's lives would be shaken as they realize who they've been following the last two years. And then God preserved it. So as we read it today, we can remember we're not just following this meek and mild Jesus who wants to meet us in the garden. We're not simply following um, a good teacher. We're following God's son. And he's told us what he expects of us. He's told us what it means to live a faithful life. Do we want to do what he says? Do we want to listen to him? And the other question that he implicitly asks is, whose whose life are you living? which goes back to what Jesus asks. In Luke 9.25, he said, What advantage do people have if they gain the whole world for themselves, yet perish or lose their lives? Faith is more than just a status. It's also a relationship. So look beyond a decision you made five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Do you make a decision every day to lose your life for Jesus' sake? so you can find it. To take up your cross daily. Mark doesn't have daily. Matthew doesn't have daily. Luke has daily. Take up your cross. Say no to yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow him. Are you living a life that is sold out for Jesus and following him? Or is it just an abstract thing? Like the Seahawks 
winning the Super Bowl again this coming year. What Peter and John saw that day on that mountain changed their lives forever because they both talked about it. They both, as they talked about Jesus, they looked to that event and they both wrote about it. In 2 Peter 2, verses 16 to 18, Peter said, We didn't repeat crafty myths when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Quite the contrary. And here it is. We witnessed his majesty with our own eyes. He received honor and glory from God the Father when a voice came to him from the magnificent glory saying, This is my dearly loved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. It, it, it was burned. It was branded onto Peter's heart so, so definitively that he wrote about it. And when he thinks of Jesus, he thinks of what he saw on the mountain that day. Because what God did worked. He realized there, he really realized who it is he's following. And John, John wrote the same thing. In John 1.14, he wrote, The Word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. He saw Jesus' glory. He got, the curtain was pulled back just a little bit, and Jesus glowed brighter with clothes whiter than any amount of OxyClean can make them. And they saw who he really is. And then one day, those three pictures I showed you, one day that picture is going to become perfectly razor sharp in Revelation 22 when all of God's people will look at the Father and Son sharing the same throne and they will see his face. And that relationship that God has been moving progressively closer will one day be perfectly complete. Perfectly complete. And the transfiguration helps us to see who it is who we're worshiping. So the transfiguration is Jesus' credential so that what he tells them can be made real for us. God commands each of us in every day, in every generation, to listen to Jesus because of who he is, to lose ourselves so we can save our lives. Not just once, not just twice, but to follow our leader through the wilderness of this life on the trail of a new and better exodus to the promised land. And the finish line in Christian stories, not a celestial heaven with harps and robes and wings, but a perfect paradise on a new and better earth and a better kingdom that he's making for all his adopted sons and daughters. The transfiguration is God showing us, this is who you're following. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And God calls us today to live like we really and truly and honestly and fervently believe it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, help us to love you. Help us to want to listen to you. Help us to have a right estimate of who you are. Help it to change our lives and inform how we live our lives, what we do, what we think, how we live. Fill us with a sense of who you are and who your Son is through the power of your Holy Spirit so we could worship you in spirit and in truth and listen to you and do what you say. In Jesus' name we pray. 